0: Digital Dissection, a nerd podcast, can at times contain adult language and themes. It is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised.
1: Welcome to the Digital Dissection Podcast, where we take a closer and possibly unnecessary look at our favorite properties, creators, and topics. We are your humble hosts, Joe and Mark. Two pop culture nerds dedicated to telling entertainment history before it's forgotten too soon. Join us on Facebook, Twitter, and our blog for more information on the show. We also love to hear from you, so why not write us at digital podcast at gmail.com? And now that we've got that out of the way, let's get to dissecting.
0: Hello, fellow pop culture nerds, and welcome back to Digital Dissection, where we take a closer and possibly unnecessary look at our favorite properties, creators, and topics. Today's guest has an incredibly diverse background in journalism, acting, and dance. She starred in Total Recall, Lethal Weapon, and of course, she's Ensign and later Commander Sonia Gomez in Star Trek The Next Generation and Star Trek Lower Decks. She's the founder of Drive-By Do-Gooders helping to bring necessary items to those in need within Los Angeles Skid Row. We welcome Lysia Neff.
2: Thank you for the one person who applauded. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> <laughs> we'll add we'll add the clapping we'll add some mm-hmm. some cheering in post joe joe's got some really good stuff for that well we we appreciate you joining us as, as we've kind of mentioned to you before we're we're definitely pop culture nerds here at the show and uh tonight we're joined by of course my co-host joe Vennipal and my older brother nate benke how are we guys how we doing guys
1: good good to be here yeah it's uh survived a, a small like squall that went through uh middle wisconsin but you know the house is still standing so everything's great
0: (laughs) yeah lisa by the way if we ever get too midwestern on you tonight like if we use too many O's or stretch out too many o's or things like that you got to let us know because we don't even realize it anymore no we we have no idea if
1: we ask it's okay to just sneak right around you there just tell us no (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah maybe
0: scooch past your mic there i'm sorry you know if it ever gets that way just 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 let us know Okay. Yeah, we'll perk right up. <laughs> but either way, you know what, um, what we like to do on this show is to provide a little bit of uh, an origin story to our guests that join us. And one of the things that stuck out to me, because my family lived out in uh, SoCal for a couple of years, we were on a military base, if you've heard of uh, Barstow, California, yes, it, you yes. know, if the earth ever needed an enema, they would insert it into Barstow, California. We lived there for a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> um but you're you're from Las Vegas originally, correct?
2: Yeah, born and raised.
0: Now, this was before um you know obviously we'd been there. But what was Las Vegas like when you were growing up as a as a kid?
2: Well, my dad was in the hotel business. He was a PR director and advertising uh executive for various hotels. So, I mean, we grew up, you know, running around the casinos and seeing the rat pack and Barbara Streisand and Cher and Tom Jones and my dad did the entire PR campaign for Elvis, the fat Elvis, um, through the <laughs> 70s. Um, so that's probably where I got a little bit of the acting bug because, uh, you know, summer camp was literally, my mom would just drop us off at the Hilton or somewhere or the Flamingo or the Aladdin or wherever my dad was working. And, you know, there was no security in those days, you know, we're talking about the 70s. And, uh, we'd, you know, make our way into the showroom and get behind the curtain and just feel the awe. You know, of maybe the curtain rising and seeing the showroom. And um, it was, um, you know, Vegas is of course is all glitzy and and you know it's been supersized. But when I grew up, it you know the Strip was a little bit more. what well, was it was simpler, and most of it was just a desert town. You know, it was small and. Um, so I kind of grew up in the desert, which was quiet and boring as all get out, you know, until I was a teenager. And uh, I, my my parents were both working you know, like full time. So my little brother and I were latchkey kids. So we both got cars at 14 and a half. Was, <laughs> I got a stick shift. It was uh, what was it called? It was a Green Hornet.
3: That <laughs> nice. asked
2: me the day before I went to school, how to drive a stick. And that next morning, I drove myself cross town to Bishop Gorman High School my freshman year, or was I already a sophomore? I don't remember. Um, No, I think it was my freshman year, and uh, it was terrifying. But I got really good at driving, and I, you know, luckily I live in L.A. So uh, I ride motorcycles now, and uh, I've never been in an accident. I can, you know, drive drunk. No, no, I'm just kidding. They're
4: <laughs> from Wisconsin up there. It's okay.
2: Yeah. It's par for yeah. the horse. We drive better when it's just a point oh nine, not you know, too much
0: <laughs> <laughs> it, it's too easy when you're when you're sober, right? You gotta, you gotta spice life up a little bit, right?
2: Yeah, yeah. You you, you clench. So you, <laughs> know, you need to kind of just loop it just enough to have road rage but not let it, you know, not take the road rage home. So that's yes. You've yeah. got the locked glove compartment so you've got the little flask in there. I don't know. <laughs> it's totally.
0: Just <laughs> well, that's actually kind of funny that you mentioned that because uh in uh in your your work with with Troma films, you know, I remember watching one of the gals in that uh the biker girls movie, she was taking a flask out of her jacket while riding the motorcycle which I I hope was uh was just water but Yeah,
2: you know. all the girls were actually in um i got it breaks their anonymity but but none of them drank none of them including me so yeah it was a kind of a sober set um we all learned in chopper and zombie town how to ride motorcycles for the first time i was the very Mm -hmm. first one to get cast um and that made complete sense to me because i'd always 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 wanted to learn how to ride a motorcycle Mm -hmm. and you know we were paid sad minimum um and it was a grueling six day a week shoot in Ridgecrest, California, mm. kind of Barstow's sister city.
4: Earthquake town. Yeah. yeah.
2: <laughs> is it Ridgecrest?
4: Really is, is it? I remember, was it Ridgecrest or
2: could be. I mean, could be. It felt like it you know, we lived on a fault. Um yeah. in a City Motel. But I turned around and gave my entire salary back to the production company to buy back the motorcycle I had. I rode. I was the Ooh. only one out of all of them who um, kept riding, and I still ride to this day. I wanted to ride last weekend. Um,
1: Fantastic. Because, what kind of bike was it?
2: Uh, it was a Harley Sportster at the time, but, you know, uh-huh. as more you ride, the more you graduate to bigger bikes, and mm-hmm. you know, it was all the rage in the mid-'80s to and mid-'90s to be, you know, on two wheels in Los Angeles, you know, with the fringe and the whole, ugh, mm-hmm. the leather and, he was very showy. <laughs> I was really never a showy person. I didn't really ride with groups or anything.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, but I, I still ride, and I'm ah, that old.
3: <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's a
2: uh, decent mm-hmm. amount of upper body strength. I've got um, what is it now? It's so modified. I forget what what it actually with the frame. It started out as a 2001 Fat Boy, which kind of Ooh. looks like a, mm-hmm. a government. Issued, you know, army bike. Uh, you know, it has floorboards and, but I, it's, i mm-hmm. completely changed it and it has no chrome on it whatsoever. I uh, spent hours and hours and then hired somebody because it was too much physical. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Take off all of the chrome. So it's all just bare metal. And then I had um, like an, you know, uh, I think it was jet, jet engine sealer on it so it wouldn't rust.
1: Ooh. And it,
2: and it rusted completely so now it's like, oh no!
1: <laughs>
2: you know it's got all these rust patches and i've got really mm-hmm. large uh beach bar handlebars and it's got a lot of engine work so it's really fast but it's a huge clunker i look like a small child on it it's like you <laughs> know 150 pound bike
1: mm-hmm.
2: um so it's a pretty heavy bike um yeah the fat it, boy
1: for the main namesake right it's got to be got to be a big boulevard so yeah it's a big it boy
2: is. <laughs> you know big fat tank and big fat tires and it's got a lot of weight to it um yeah and it's it's heavy to turn it, it does, it's not in love with turning you know You just have to throw all of your weight over it. and if you do too, mm-hmm. if you turn too much you know it'll hit the um it, the pipes and it pops you back up and that's always really fun
1: <laughs> <laughs> it'll wake you up <laughs> yeah
2: I'm, I'm, I'm due for a downgrade i'm due for something slimmer mm-hmm. and lighter um you know and it has yeah. it has no fairing because I bought a fairing, a really good one. Mm-hmm. But you don't feel the wind, right? Yeah. And that's not good for me because I wouldn't yeah. realize how fast I was going, especially on Mulholland and all the on the turns. Mm-hmm. And I, I I lost my sense of safety in a weird way. I got had this, you know, I felt like I was in a car. Mm-hmm. So I got rid of the fairing so that I would be you know, cognizant of my own speed so that I just wouldn't go into a turn too fast because it got too comfortable. You know.
0: You look pretty comfortable in chopper chicks, especially in the in the credits, because you're you're kind of swaying as you're as you're driving (laughs) in the beginning.
2: (laughs) We're all new, but I was pretty much I was the last one Mm -hmm. to figure out how to ride, but I ended up being the best one and I end up, you know, being the lifelong biker. Um they start you off at motorcycle school, you go to the Hollywood Bowl parking lot. And the first thing you do in on little Honda 250s, Honda 250s, I think it were tiny mm-hmm. little bikes, you learn to walk across the parking lot, then you learn how to just do first gear. And I didn't understand there was the concept I wasn't locking something in because if you move your handlebars slightly, you can go over. And I had no upper body strength. I was always going over. I was under my bike more than I was on the bike. And you know, the producers are all watching us and everyone else is kind of passing all the tests. And I'm like, hello. Oh, you know, <laughs> but um, the first day they take us all out like 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 a mama duck and little ducklings. The first thing, man, it's like you we go right from the Hollywood Bowl to the 101 freeway. You have to merge onto a, an extremely fast moving six lanes of traffic where people don't give a flying, you know, I don't cuss. Flying,
3: You know, honestly,
2: we got so good so fast, and I was always yelling at the producers on the downtime, let us practice, let us practice. It was was really because I wanted to practice. It was so fun. So, you know, I did the splits on the bike, and I would lay on the bike, and I would, you know, wrap my legs around the bike and sit up halfway on the bike. And, yeah, I'm getting all excited to ride as soon as now. At my age, mm-hmm. I, I became a, a real biker for quite a while. I would only date bikers, and I smoked cigarettes with bikers. I don't smoke, yeah. you know.
0: Um, it goes to your mouth, but you don't inhale, right? You no. Know, oh, I did at time,
2: but oh. because, you know, I'm always mooching mm-hmm. off of you know boyfriend cigarettes, and they always get your own pack. And it's like, <laughs> no, I hate cigarettes. I don't know what a you know, in <laughs> <get knocked laughs> the drama of it, it's you know, just mm-hmm. the whole thing. Um, so I, you know, I had a car, I had a, I, what was it, a Volkswagen Cabriolet, so I'd have a, you know, the roof off, mm-hmm. but I would just ride everywhere for, for years. Um, and I just was very confident, overly confident, by the way, just totally overly confident.
3: Mm-hmm. Um,
2: and now forget it. It's like, unless all the stars are aligned, unless the weather is perfectly 75 and there's not a lot of wind, and you know, then I'll go. Because, you know i've got more at stake i suppose and i feel more mortal you
1: know? mm-hmm. oh yeah
2: so uh yeah I, i'm not as risky
1: yeah well, i mean when you' when you're young with a motorcycle i think overconfident really is the only setting
2: and i think it saves you because if you're hesitating and you're just hesitating you you're lost you're mm-hmm. gone you can't hesitate which you which you learn on i can't believe we're talking about this but what you learn in motorcycle safety school, and it's really true, is not only do you have like peripheral vision, you practice 360 looking behind you, is you accelerate out of a problem. Where when you're in a car, you might slow down, you know, let somebody merge. It, you know, when you're riding a motorcycle, you accelerate and get out of a drama. And, mm-hmm. and that's how, you know, you survive. So, yeah. yeah, being fearless, I think, is a really important skill if you have any desire to ride a motorcycle. If not. Don't even try, you know, and also Mm -hmm. for anyone out there who cares about this, but I don't know, you know, maybe there are bikers or want to be bikers. You have to get trained. Don't say, don't let your husband or your boyfriend or your girlfriend train you. No, take a motorcycle safety class because it teaches you, you know, step one to step 10 so that Mm -hmm. you can pass the test, number one. And then then number two, you're really confident once you get out there because, you know, you snooze, you lose. Mm -hmm. You have to be... Uh, and this is the last I'll say on it because it's a ridiculous conversation. It's more for me than <laughs> anyone else out there. You know, it's the most meditative and relaxed mm-hmm. and highly aware and alert that you ever can be, you know, combined. Because your arms and your legs and your head are the roof of your car and your doors, you know. Um, I lived in Laurel County at the time and um, I modified that Sportster so it looked like a small, um, knucklehead or something. It was sat really low and had uh, awesome. Yeah, it was really cool. And I had a big handlebars. And I was really into turning, you know, just really mm-hmm. as far as I could it was so fun. And Laurel Canyon is very twisty. So um on the way home one day, I'm turning and I'm turning and I'm turning. I'm just and I hit a patch and the bike shoots out from under me, Ooh. rolls full speed into the hill and I'm dropped on the ground as if I'm still on the bike. Uh-huh. And I just like like a cartoon my butt just fly um, you know my butt all the way up into the side of this hill had road rash everywhere
3: oh no it
2: was a shock and i'm like you know i kind of you know come to and it's like i'm really thirsty i'm really because you're in shock and so i go over to a house where where there's like a garden hose and i'm trying to drink some water it's like (laughs) okay I'll, I'll, i'll get back on the bike in a minute i'm just gonna take a small nap (laughs)
0: <laughs> oh, no.
2: yeah.
0: Yeah. That's great advice though. The next time I feel you know that tired or that that traumatized, I'll just go drink off of someone's hose in their yard because that's 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 really good advice for people.
2: I guess so, but don't lay your head down and rest a minute until you because you just your your body's going into shock, you
1: know. Yeah. You know? Well, <laughs> no, I'm I'm glad we had this conversation because like again, like this idea of like being a nerd is just being passionate about something. And clearly like biking is something you were very passionate about and still are. And it's like, I've, I've owned two motorcycles. I, I don't have them anymore, but I've also laid one of them out too and knew that I was also kind of in that same state where like, uh, my bike's gone. It's in pieces. Oh, it's kind of in pieces, but I think I can pick it up and lift it up. I've got to get out of the way for traffic. I have right. to be polite to these Minnesotans trying to drive through at midnight. <laughs> There's no one on the road, but I can't hold traffic up. I've got to get these people out of it. I've got to get people got to get this thing going. Right. So completely got it. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: You're not in your right mind. You're not in your no. right mm-hmm. mind. The, the, the other time that was adorable. Because you're just overly confident and young. I don't know how I wasn't that young to be honest. I was probably in my late 20s already. Um, I was big into um, wearing cutoff shorts and fishnets. Remember when girls were doing that in cowboy boots,
3: mm-hmm. oh, I was yeah.
2: a motorcycle uniform, and um, I'm on Santa Monica Boulevard, white lining it, you know, going through traffic, and I'm chasing a, a boy on a bike. Um, I'm drafting off of him really, and um, i i i don't know what i was thinking i i tried i had um at the time i had crash bars on the sides mm-hmm. um and i i tried to squeeze through but the traffic was stuck and it was uh too close of a call and i got caught in between two parked you know slowing down cars
3: Ooh. i
2: squeezed my legs in and my pipes at the side uh, at the time were on each side of the bike and fucking wearing shit fishnets <laughs> I got tattoos of fishnets up the sides of my leg. Oh, yeah, up the oh, sides mm-hmm. of my calves um, where the fishnets just burned right into my, uh, but it was kind of cool. I mean,
3: mm-hmm.
2: way, very nerdy. I mean- it's
0: Everyone loves a good scar, right? That's a story. It's savings, yeah. you know. Now you don't have mm-hmm. to buy fishnets anymore because
4: they're they're already there. They're just they're built in. Or
3: tattoos or tattoos, right? <laughs> well, right, now
2: we'll like, pay good
4: that's... money for burned-in tattoos now. So
0: <laughs> You're ahead of your time, Branding. Yeah. Well. Well. Speaking of being fearless, okay. Some of the the things that we kind of have read about you, things that I just kind of read about you in in the very beginning was that you know dancing played a big part of of your early career and what i've always wanted to understand about that is you know where did you get your moves where where did that start like did you you know did you become part of a group or did you just have the the dance you know burning inside you from the beginning like where did that begin
2: yeah, it's burning inside of me well i was a kid growing up in las vegas and on saturdays it would be soul train and then um what, the dick clark's uh, show american, american Bandstand.
4: Bandstand. Yep.
2: And that's all it took. I was just I would study the moves and dance, you know, full half hour in front of the TV set, and that's all that like sparked my interest as a kid. Um, and I loved it, loved it, loved it. Um, so when I got into high school, I tried to get into the song leading team because it's a big difference between uh, cheerleaders and song leaders. Um, uh, song leaders have um, choreography, so um, I made alternate uh, song leader, and I was enraged my ego was like alternate still part of the team nobody knew um and i was like "Fuck this so i was with them maybe for two weeks and i quit and just started to and and sought out a dance class dance studio and so i was about 15 at the time and started taking dance and i learned from a dance teacher there we would go after school and so it was like me a little kid named carlos and strippers and, and showgirls warming up for the evening. That's what, those are the people in the dance class, in ballet 101, you know, and in jazz. We're, we're um, professionals off of the strip. And um, uh, one of the teachers told us about the New York School of uh, Performing Arts for high school kids. And he would tell us, cause he graduated from there. He'd tell us stories about it. It was like, oh my God, that's where we need to go to high school. Oh, what a dream, what a dream. Um, so, uh, over the summer of my junior year, was it sophomore year or junior year? Um, it was my junior year. I, I, I stayed at my aunt's house in, uh, in the Valley, um, San Fernando Valley, North Hollywood, and started to study dance up the street, um, on Vineland and Ventura Boulevard. And I had the balls at the end of summer to try to figure out a way to stay in Los Angeles and not go back to school in Las Vegas. And I knew I'd have to come up with a good case. So I thought, well, if I asked the teacher for a full scholarship, maybe my dad would let me stay. And the teacher said, yeah, his name is Jaime Rogers. He's a very famous choreographer. In fact, he was uh, in the original West Side Story, one of Jerome Robbins' boys. And um, I went back to my dad and he said, yeah. So um, I went to high school and, and danced uh, several classes every day after that. And um, then one day in the dance studio, um, I realized there were acting classes. Um, and I thought, you know what, you don't speak when you're a dancer, you just don't speak.
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You can
2: go days and days and days without talking. <laughs> yep. I, you know, Didn't really bother me until I kind of realized you don't talk. All you do is you know watch and repeat. Um, and I, I decided to try to take a, an acting class, and I met a girl who uh, whose manager wanted to uh, manage me. And the very first audition was for fame. and fame took um, took place at the you know fictional um, uh, school for the Performing Arts in New York. it was the it was the pilot and then the series for the movie. You know, yeah. a, as, a, as a teen, I saw the movie in Los Angeles a bunch of times and, uh, you know, just dreamt about it. And then, boom, I got a chance to audition. I, I made um, I made the show. I acted in the pilot, and I made uh, part of the dance troupe. And I did that for a couple of years until I uh, realized acting was a lot easier and they pay a lot more and, you know, fuck dancing. So that, <laughs> that's how that mm-hmm. happened. Yeah. So yeah,
0: so really quick, when you talk about school, this was Providence High, right?
2: Yeah. Okay.
0: Uh, the reason why I wanted to ask you about Providence High was because there's a couple other alum that, are, that people might know about from there. There's there's Helen Hunt and uh, Mina Savari, I believe, right. al- also went there. And your mascot is also the same as mine was uh, in high school. We were also the Pioneers. So the the Pioneers just have a, a soft spot in my heart. Oh, wow. <laughs> they <laughs> always will that
2: was much younger than me and helen was much older um i had the choice to go anywhere i wanted and i decided to go to the private school literally because going to north hollywood high i'd have to spend an extra hour or so a day in school and providence let you out early so i would be able to get all my classes early in Mm -hmm. and and hit a 1 p.m dance class so yeah
0: well, yeah. you know, this is actually a really good transition point because uh, one of the f- first fan questions we had, uh, Joe's yeah. going to gonna take over for us. And it actually kind of explores, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Licia at this point in time, we really want to know more. So Joe, feel free to take away.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Our uh, fans want to know, did 16-year-old Licia have a career dream before acting or was performing slash acting kind of the first real big dream job you no, had? No,
2: the, the, the dream job was um, dancing. I would see the Carol Burnett show once a week. And the dancers would do maybe three to five um, with full costume changes, three to five dances. And I would just, you know, I, I loved the comedy, but it was like, oh, my gosh. You know, they're dressed in colonial times, and now they're in go-go clothes. The dream was to be a professional dancer. Um, so I succeeded. Um, you know, I was a teenager and making a living, and everyone I was in dance class with was much better, by the way. At dancing than i was but for some reason it's that same like motorcycle hoods but i guess i went pro and i got my sad card and after card and i was gotten to every union and i started to make good money and became a professional but so it was dancing for sure and then i you know really thought about it where do you go after you burn out your body like choreography and would i be able to do that and i i dreamt choreography all the time i go to sleep and dream routines all the time. But because I was also acting on the show, mm-hmm. um, I really liked acting. So that became the new dream. Um, so I, that's how I transitioned into acting for 10 years.
0: Which, I mean, you had a hell of a transition. I mean, just just because of looking at some of the, the work that you've been involved with, uh, we've got the Jeffersons, General Hospital, I've I've heard that you got a really bitch and tan for Baywatch. You know, I mean, these are these are some pretty iconic properties to be involved in. And it, you know, we've heard of other we've talked to other actors on this show who have, you know, talked about differences and maybe when they got started, some have gone door to door. You know, others have uh, you know networked with other friends who are actors, that kind of thing. But how did you really initially you know break through to some of these properties? Because, yeah. right, we love to know that.
2: Well, you know, it, it was real for me. I would have still been an actor, but it was really tough. At the end of moving into my ninth year of acting, I did a, a TV movie called The Perfect Date and I got an Emmy nomination. Um, and I didn't get it. And then a year after that, my agents dropped me. And I went, What am I going to do? I'm 30. Um, I have no life experience and now they want me to play college kids and i don't know what it would be even like to be in college so i started to go to school and um i ended up segueing out of the business but the business was very very rough for me i had a i had a good agent um a good manager um uh i did clan of the cave bear lethal weapon total recall i was in a couple of long-running soaps i did a lot of guest stars on a lot of You know 80s shows but it's hard to believe and wrap your mind around right now but ethnic was not in Mm -hmm. it was all american and the constant feedback would be she's too ethnic we're going another way she's too dark she's too ethnic i was relegated to playing it's 100 true like hookers runaways drug addicts maids the girlfriend of the white girl um i I was never able to go for leads but i I had a good reputation as an actor where they would give me a chance on the leads and sometimes i'd make it all the way down to the end and ultimately they would go with the white person because that was the that was what's in now it's you know every it's it's gone overboard you got you got an asian you got a black you got a you know an east indian you got a real indian you you know you've got an italian a jew you know it's like it's too much um it's unrealistic how diverse it is but back then through the 80s and early 90s it started to change after i got out with um in living color and jennifer lopez and paula abdul and they were the first ones believe it or not to kind of uh allow ethnic to, to kind of be cool and be hip it came in with like hip the hip-hop thing but prior to that you know, I could be anything, but what? Italian, um, Jewish. Um, I did an episode of Hardcastle and McCormick, which no one will remember, where I played a um, the Sheik's girlfriend. I was a skyjacker's girlfriend a couple of times. They don't even call them skyjackers. That's how old I am. You know, it was you know. So it's a hijacker of a plane. The yes, skyjackers. yes. Oh, my God. I'm a
4: little more sensitive about that now. Yeah. Now. yeah.
2: I was always oh. a mafia girlfriend. Mm-hmm. Um, I played a dozen hookers, uh, you know. And they was, you know, sometimes it would be guest spots with lots of lines, and sometimes it would be like Lethal Weapon, you know, all dressed up and no one to blow.
3: <laughs> yeah. You know, in
0: the, yeah. in the
2: second um, act, I'm in a body bag. It was kind of one of those things.
0: And it wasn't even you in the body bag, right? It was somebody else that they put oh, in the body guys, bag.
2: Not me in the body bag. <laughs> <laughs> not a human body in a body bag. extra is in the body well,
0: bag. You never know if they're gonna like unzip a little bit to like show the face or something, right? I, mean, right? I mean, no, no
2: one's me. I was Dixie the hooker. Nobody gave a shit about me.
1: Well, we uh, we care. We do, right? I, actually, I. I do recall you were on one of my. You were on the pilot of one of my favorite shows, the '90s, The Flash, where yeah. you did play a biker's girlfriend. Yeah. And one thing we love to do on the show is actually look at values from once upon a time and compare them to now. So, if anyone remembers, your boyfriend wanted you to break away from the main gang and he had a wad of cash that said this was going to get us through. Does anyone remember how much money that he was gonna? He said that was going to get you through to the next town.
2: Oh, my God. Can it be multiple choice?
1: <laughs> multiple choice. Go. Okay. It is, we will have uh, $200, $300, $500, or $900. God. How much oh. money did you have that was going to get you through the next time?
2: Yeah. I got to just tell you, it was it was a two-week shoot, mm-hmm. and it's all night.
1: Oh, my. Yeah, because, so- yeah, everything was night. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: Um, I was, you know, you'd arrive at the set at 8 PM or 7 PM or, you know, when the sun was setting, they put, put you in makeup and costume and they call you to the set at two in the morning. Oh my god! So I have zero real recollection, but for some reason, $200 feels right.
1: Ah, it was, it was 300 bucks. It was going to really? get you through. And if you adjust for inflation, that's currently $660.
2: He was an idiot.
1: Idiot, huge idiot, because immediately you go and tell the boss, like, this guy's stealing from you, you got to get him out of here, which anyone comes up to you and says, I've got $660, don't worry, baby, all of our dreams are solved. He's an idiot. What is he thinking? No wonder you turned him in. Does
4: that even get you to Victorville today in gas money?
2: Right. No, it's seven dollars 29
0: a gallon out here right now. Wow. 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 to, to pull back the curtain just a little bit more here, uh, Nate's got our our next fan question to uh, ask a little bit more about this behind the scenes process with some of these properties you're involved in.
4: So, I mean, obviously, like it, as far as getting older, you having to do with Star Trek. No, I'm a, I'm a Trekkie. It's not really a. I, I've got a, you know, the Picard uh, jacket upstairs and all of that. <laughs> um, I don't wear it out in public, you know, for my wife's sake. <laughs> I try to I, I got to be I got to be kind of covered on that but you know I it, it, and I, I remember this scene like kind of go for go like it took two takes you said to get the hot chocolate scene down I got a couple of questions to follow up even on that but like kind of like what was your I mean I don't know if it only took two takes it kind of means you 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 know you did it pretty well the first time but like when I watched it again I'm like it, and I see this in like in, in the movie Old School where when someone spills something on somebody else Kind of like the acting thing is to sit there and like spread the liquid all over them and you kind of do the same thing was that were you told to do that or was that like instinctual like okay
2: no all right so um i was an ensign in engineering and uh you know I'm, i'm 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 so nervous in front of captain picard that i spill my hot chocolate all over his uh uniform his chest area and the only reason by the way. We had we did it in two takes or that they ever do those kinds of things in two takes. Like I was in Hunter, uh, where I have to um, in the pilot called the Snow Queen. um, I have to jump in a pool um, or I'm shot or something. I forget. I fall in a pool and it's it all has to do with wardrobe. They only have a couple changes of stuff. Mm -hmm. And um, so they really want to get you on the first take. And they had two Picard outfits because I didn't need to change. He did, and you know, he's fucking him. He's not gonna do it over and over and over again. So there was a lot of pressure on me to nail it. I didn't nail it the first time, so they did it a second time just for safety. Um, So that's why there was two takes. Um, I think it was just um, improvisation. We didn't really even rehearse it, um, except for blocking so yeah you know, i think i might have rehearsed it with an empty cup you know how it's going to be i'm trying to clean i'm trying to clean him so that was just yeah it was just an improv that was they the hot
4: chocolate real hot chocolate or is it just some like
2: i'm sure it wasn't hot <laughs> <laughs> it
1: looked,
2: like oh like yeah it was chocolate milk yeah
1: yeah, I was gonna say, good on both of you that Patrick Stewart wasn't like, oh, this is actually hot, and you're actually touching with your hands, like, this is fine, this is all fine, this isn't boiling or anything, it's okay.
2: I'm, I'm trying to clean him, I think it's like I'm trying to white, <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah,
4: did, did you like talk much to Patrick Stewart? Was he like a you know, he seemed like on TV, like a pretty cool guy, but like, I don't, I mean,
2: um, well, this was the second season, um, right, and uh, you know, he was still you know, very strong with that Shakespearean professionalism. Uh he only showed up on the set. You don't hang out, he's got a trailer that's, you know, the the size of my house. So only he only showed up for blocking, a uh, lighting blocking, and and then rehearsal and shooting. So not really, but he was very kind uh, you know, when we were getting lit, when we had to kind of stand there and get blocked and stuff. It was Who's friendly? He didn't have any kind of superiority or you know, a trip like you hear some actors where you're not allowed to look in their eye. You have to keep your head down, you know. I mean, there are there are people like
0: yeah. that. It's like working with a gorilla, right? Like, yeah, don't look into its eyes. You <laughs> right. know, bow, bow, you know.
2: Yeah, yeah. You have to be subservient. Yeah. No. Um, um, so no, there was not a lot of chatting. However, um, the minute I arrived on the set, I was introduced to Jordy because most of my scenes were gonna be with um Jordy and he took me to his trailer and that was fabulous it was like a fucking yoga studio no no kidding I am not or an ashram would be better incense is burning and he's got these beautiful like scarves on all the windows so that the natural sunlight comes through and it's pink and orange and we're sitting on like pillows and I mean it was magical I I wouldn't be surprised if he had like some you know gong
0: you know, <laughs> <laughs> like a, you walk in and doves just kind of fly out the front door, I kind did. of thing, right? And okay. he was, well, he's he's really spiritual. the Burton is it? that makes like...
2: sense because it was a very spirit, and he really wanted me to connect with him. And he was so 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 kind. I mean, I was nobody, and there wasn't even the thought that I was going to become a regular at that moment in time mm-hmm. or anything like that. And you uh, you know, he we we didn't re- we didn't rehearse with his glasses on. We would just connect. He was so easy to connect to it was just vibed immediately because he's so available he's like he's not full of his own performance which trust me most actors are it's it's kind of it makes me feel like they're not real professionals they can't uh really connect like one-on-one and be in the moment and all that kind of stuff but not (laughs) him he really connects.
4: as as far as like building his reputation up i got it i got to know this too were there any books in his trailer
2: yeah, tons of books.
4: Okay, I was about to say, because he only encouraged everyone else to read books growing up, so I yeah. got to know. like.
2: Yeah, he was doing Reading Rainbow already at that point, yeah. I think. Yeah, okay. no, he had tons of books, and they were all a little bit more spiritually based. He didn't have kids' books or anything. I was to <laughs> <gonna> say, <laughs> that'd, I, that'd
0: so He doesn't have the Berenstain Bears, yeah. you know, on his but bookshelf no, thing.
2: The anecdote <laughs> I've never told, because I, I've never really thought about it, is we rehearsed, rehearsed, rehearsed. You know, we had all our lines down for all of our scenes for each week. Mm-hmm. But we rehearsed. um, Actually, we shot both episodes in the same week. I think, if I recall,
4: I don't remember. Samaritan Snare, yeah. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah,
2: yeah. Q Who and Samaritan Snare. By the way, they were the highest rated of the entire five-year run. Those two. Credit
4: to you. Yeah, it's a credit to you.
2: I would hope so. Um, No, no, not really. I'm kidding. But (laughs) you know, we get to the set, and uh, there's not a lot of time. It's TV, you know, so it's one rehearsal just to walk down a hallway, or one rehearsal just to get things lit up and do do it correctly. And you go right into sh- basically shooting the rehearsal, and then shooting you know five takes, and that's it. And then they move on. Um, and here's the here's what I'm getting to. I had all of this connection and all of this good chemistry with him, and then he put the glasses on, and I went, it was gone. No. I was con- I mm-hmm. the the I wasn't connecting with his eyes. His eyes were gone. So that's why I think he rehearses so hard with other actors because mm-hmm. he knows now our performance might suffer a little bit because we're not seeing his eyes. I'm having to remember how loving he was looking at me and how his eyes would water kind of to take care of me, you know, and counsel me and all this stuff. So it was, it was weird. I almost choked. I kind of didn't know how to handle it at first because I was so thrown by acting with this thing. And of course, you know, the story, Mm-hmm. um there it was the last two uh, episodes of that season yeah. and there was talk that maybe they would write me in as a regular for the next season uh because the way the the Canon is the big thick book ensign uh Sonia Gomez uh Doherty falls so much in love with her that he's he's willing to take this life-threatening surgery to his eyes in order mm-hmm. to see her he mm-hmm. wouldn't do yeah. it for himself he would only do it for true love. And that would remove the 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 visor, and yeah. give him a chance to not wear the visor also for the rest instead, of
4: instead. Instead, he turns it down. He turns down the surgery. Mm-hmm. Turns
2: down the surgery. Yeah. Right. But a big part of it was they'd written my character, and I guess the way I was directed and the way I played it was comic relief to a mentor student, and I was kind of a comic relief. Well, why did I? And he would never they couldn't logically you know he would never really fall in love with somebody like me you know i it it came off as an age gap Hmm. and i was too dorky nerdy you know i'm part of your club so uh, yeah to be
4: to be fair though he never falls in love with anybody really on that show other than a hologram on the holodeck and uh a couple other uh you know misfires
2: but at least kind both. of
1: gets a like a data bromance, and that's kind of about yeah. the most he right. gets. If I mm-hmm. would have
2: known, maybe I would have, I don't know. maybe I don't know. I could have maybe added that note into the performance in some way. Mm-hmm. Have some chemistry, some sexual chemistry.
3: Yeah.
2: I didn't have a clue. Um, yeah. I was told at the end of the shoot there's a chance. Um, then they edited it together and they called me back two weeks later. you know I don't I don't know if I I don't know if I've ever told this Mm -hmm. anecdote. This is pretty painful. Um so um I uh wanted to get my hair cut and um I didn't know if they were going to want me back uh, because they they had they had floated that balloon that I could be called back. Mm -hmm. And I also didn't know if it was I didn't really understand that it was the end of the the shooting season for hiatus. I should have known because I know how Hollywood schedules are. It was going to become the summer. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought I probably should get permission to cut my hair, but you know, and also it would give me a chance to find out if they needed me again. Right. <laughs> oh, yeah, <laughs> nice. Nice. So for some reason, my agents wouldn't call or I don't know what it was. I found the fucking number. Maybe I found it through the casting director of the writer's room. The writers were all producers, mm-hmm. producer writers. Um, and I called the writer's room and talked to the producer, you know, one of the producers and said, you know, hey, you know, I don't know if you're gonna, you know, need to use me again if you want me back for any pickup shots or whatever, but I'm planning to cut my hair uh, short. Is that okay? And then they they called me back. I was at that time I was like, <gasps> you
3: know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so yeah. they
2: finally called me back like two days later and they they released me. They go, no, yeah, go ahead and cut your hair. So I did. I cut my hair. Motherfuckers! Two (laughs) weeks later, they did pickup shots in the hallway where where Jordy and I are having that heart to heart talk. Where you know, I want to see the stars. I wanna, I wanna be out there with you. I wanted to be the best ensign I can be. One of those uh, Mm high in the sky, you know, dreamy sequences where. So they reshot it, and but I get to the set, and all frigging hell breaks loose, and I i'm 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 mortified i'm mortified i um oh wait wait before that before that I, i'm mortified because while i'm doing uh, the principal photography at some point they watched the dailies and I, there was a knock on my uh trailer door and it was a golf court and there was a second ad and uh he said get in the cart the producers want to have a meeting with you i'm like
1: oh no Oh
2: I'm like sick. I'm sick. I mean sick to my stomach. I mean, I'm feeling it right now. And that long golf cart ride to to this big, you know, ugly conference room. And I'm sitting in with the producers and they have on a on a big screen, they you know, they they get to a scene and I don't remember which scene it was. Oh, I think it's in engineering, maybe where I'm pressing fake buttons on a wall. You know,
3: yeah.
2: um, and they freeze frame it and they go, You see that? You see that? You see that? They're talking to me, the actor. They go, Those are flyaways, because I had a shag exactly like this still. You know? <laughs> and they were like, There's look at those flyaways, these flyaways, we don't like that, you know. Star Trek has helmet hair. Everyone has really, you know, and like every every person on the set has a costume handler where they're keeping all the wrinkles. The, leg- the leggings have stirrups so that the legs are straight down underneath the shoes. And all the men wear shoulder pads so they- and chest plates. So it looks like they're buff and they're not yeah. a bum. No. I knew it. I
1: knew it. <laughs> the now future's I- a lie.
2: They- they're girdled in and they have, <laughs> I'm not joking, they're girdled in oh and they have these chest plates and shoulder pads that look like muscles. And I, you know, I was an A cup at the time. They kept uh, expanding my boobs to show uh, it, it through the outfit. Anyway, I had a D cup that was like this in real life, which still only looks kind of like, it only reads like a B or a C on film. Anyway, they were yelling at me for my flyaways. This is during principal photography. And I was like, oh, how do I, I could I? you know, so they call in the, the the hairdresser and then they show her because why are they talking to me? I don't do my hair. They did my hair. I mean, I was not but I was so mortified, I was so young, and I was just, anyway, you know, crisis averted. You know, they helmet-haired my hair down, and they kind of hair-sprayed it so it would not fly away. So cut to, they release me, I cut a couple inches off my hair, they change their mind to do pickup shots. I come back, my hair is a couple inches shorter, fucking complete meltdown on the set. It's, it's as if, I don't know, I mean, I, it's... I, I I can't understand, you know, why things become such a big deal, other than it's very expensive and every minute you lose, sure, it's like, Mm -hmm. production is like a slow moving dinosaur. Once it starts to get moving, you don't want that dinosaur to have to stop because that's millions of dollars every time, you know, $30,000 a minute or something. So it all, everything came to a stop while there's conferences about what to do about my hair. And... I was blamed and I was yelled at, but I covered my bases. I actually asked for sneaky reasons, really, to see if I was gonna mm-hmm. become a regular and I could relax for the entire summer, you yeah. know, knowing I was gonna either be you know, rich and famous or it was just gonna go back to being a day player. Um, and then, you know, I, it, it all came down on me. It was really, really terrifying. So they, they... They put hair extensions in a very famous, um, makeup and hairstylist, Michael Westmore, the Westmore family who did all the, yeah. old movies, mm-hmm. Planet of the cave bear. They actually did, um, total recall. And I did total recall. Um, they, you know, Westmore's, they've done everything. Mm-hmm. Mike Westmore more knew me from, um, uh, Planet of the cave bear and he was really nice to me. So he immediately, Found a matching color and they put hair extensions in and they tried to match it up and all that kind of stuff. And they're waiting and ticking. And, you know, I nailed the scenes the way they wanted them, um, or the way I was directed. And I was just petrified. And I thought that's why they didn't ask me back, you know, because I cut my hair and they were all yelling at me and I have flyaway hair. And, you know, I don't know.
4: Ooh. I doubt they were ever that much pressure on Patrick Stewart. They probably never got about him about his hair.
1: Uh, actually, yeah. I think they did. They did initially. Like they didn't like the idea of a bald captain, so like they had him like read with a uh, with a toupee, and he was not comfortable. It's true. And... It's true.
0: It's yeah. true. Mm-hmm. He said the the toupee was so ridiculous that he 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 refused to do it.
1: Yep.
2: So, well, mm-hmm. you heard now that they tried to get him back on TV for a couple decades, and yeah, okay. they were throwing projects at him and, and scripts and scripts and none mm-hmm. of them. They were all like revisits of what what's already done. There was no new information. There was no progression. And the only wh- reason he liked Picard um, is because that it was innovative and there was somewhere mm-hmm. to go. There was territory that he hadn't explored as an actor. So you knew that, right? Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And revisiting revisiting uh, your character. Um, I don't. I just get hearing about like they that you they thought you played it as a comic relief and that there's no way. They could see you and Jordy being together. I just think is ridiculous. Other than your initial initial like moment where of course like you're you're super nervous because like you've made it to the Enterprise, this is the big show, and there's some panic, the rest of the episode, like you're optimistic. In the next episode, you give Wesley great advice for when he's nervous about interacting with Picard, and then you are nothing but confidence the entire time Geordie's been taken. So I think I don't I think you played that fantastically.
2: Uh, all right. So when I started to do the creation Las Vegas stuff, mm-hmm. right? Um, I ended up getting a. I think they're called a signing man. I, it's a different kind of agent or manager. I'd already been out of business forever. Um, it's somebody who gets you into Monster Palooza and, and autograph shows. Mm-hmm. And um, he said he heard through the grapevine that actually the reason why um, I didn't get picked up as a regular was my agents that a deal came their way and they fucked up the, the deal. I have a mm-hmm. really hard time believing that, but if, because I know that, you know, they they come to me and go, hey, do you want to do this two week TV mo- movie in Roanoke, Virginia? It's only minimum wage, you know? And I'd say, mm-hmm. yeah, you know? So they they come with me, to me with low ball, you know, B movie salaries or, you know, the, the, the lower sack and I don't do anything. I don't care. Um, mm-hmm. I just wanted to act. Um, so I find that hard to believe they're not in business anymore, but if I, I would love to find out if that was the truth, that would be yeah. fucking heartbreaking, right? Yeah. If I didn't even mm-hmm. have an option to turn it down, they turned it down for me because it wasn't enough money,
4: but they did bring you back recently. I mean,
2: yes. Yeah, I mean, that um, There's later.
4: a little bit of redemption there.
2: Three, years later, <laughs> yeah. years. Three years later. Yeah. years later. Lowered
0: it. it. And it's actually a funny transition because this is our next fan question that, that Joe will take us away on here. Uh, so, Joe, when you're ready.
1: Okay, so you did uh, have mentioned before uh, that you uh, money was humorously being a factor in returning to Star Trek. Were there any other influences that made you want to come back?
2: That asked. Two words. They yeah. asked, mm-hmm. "Are you kidding me?" I, I, you know, I've been out of the business for quite a while. Um, my acting career only lasted ten years. Uh, then I went into uh, going back to college, going to college for the first time when I was thirty. Um, then segueing into journalism, and I became an undercover investigative reporter for most of that, which means I didn't take a byline. Nobody knew what I was doing. Mm-hmm. Um, I was a celebrity journalist following A listers all over the world. So that's how mm. I was able to retire after a very short time. <laughs> <laughs> Good money. Um, but, uh, you know, I didn't even know Lorendex existed, to be quite frank. Um, when I got a call through that signing agent that said, Do you want to do this? It's only $5,000. Um, I went, $5,000 to voiceover for an hour? And I'm I'm re and I'm a captain and I have my own ship.
3: <laughs> it was, yes.
2: It was the middle of the pandemic and it was mm-hmm. it was actually the beginning, you no, know, it was about maybe six, eight months into the pandemic when everybody was freaked out.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So I go to um an ADR studio in the valley, and you know, they take my temperature uh everywhere, under <laughs> yeah. my armpits, in my mouth and in my butt, and then uh, you know. Masked, I'm gloved, and the person coming to the doors in a hazmat suit. The only person in there is the sound engineer. And I get in there, and there's five big TV screens, and they're all the producers, all the major producers and writers, you know, looking at me on Zoom. And uh, it was kind of funny. It was, it felt very hollow, holographic, very, very Star Trek y. Mm -hmm. Just all these talking heads. We weren't used to Zoom yet, really. Yeah. so it was great. I worked for an hour, hour and a half. Um, then they designed and created the characters animation from the voiceover. So I did all of the lines first. And then they said, okay, we'll see you in a year for you know, for pickups. So uh, they said that's how long it takes. It takes a year to animate a, a 21 minute episode. Um, and I was like, Oh yeah, pickups, pickups, because that's another five grand. I was like. But I was so good, I guess, they never called me back to do anything. Oh, no. Yeah.
4: What you're yeah. telling us is you need to screw up a little bit. I know. <laughs> a little bit. You're too good Once at it.
2: again, I was trying to see if they'd write me back in. But the problem, mm-hmm. when I read the script, though, I knew I was just a pawn to further a storyline. Mm-hmm. I didn't, you know, yeah, I had my own ship, but, you know, it, I was really, you know... Um, secondary to to uh, the, the the main plot so i well, knew they it call me back as they're captain. bringing
4: lavar burton and, and, and in the card next season so all maybe them. they'll all
2: maybe of them they'll, maybe
4: they'll drop a line or something maybe maybe you guys had a connection or something and he, he mentioned when, when, you you
2: know how i've been thinking about this if i buy imdb pro you can get um the the manager the business manager the agent the lawyer all of the uh, information of a of an actor,
3: mm-hmm.
2: you're not going to get their home address or anything. But if I could possibly get the PR, like get Jordy's PR person, make a call, see if there's any way a note could get to uh, to Lavar. Usually, good PR people, it's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. But I don't know, uh, you know, that if they're a Star Trek fan, if you know. And then put a bird in Levar's ear. Oh my mm-hmm. God!
3: No.
0: Oh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, hey, maybe we can just we can go on Twitter because we we have a you know a Twitter page, oh. and maybe maybe we can ask mm-hmm. on your behalf to Levar and and just tag then and, and see what he says. <laughs> we'll see be, if we get back.
3: That would be great.
0: <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or maybe we can try our shot at some investigative journalism. You know, find out where he is, hang out outside, and just see if we can get some <laughs> some info. You know, because honestly, that that's one thing that I really, when we first uh, connected with you, um, I, I knew about your involvement in in the Cosby, you know, on, uh, basically breaking that mm-hmm. case wide open. Yeah. And you can't tell, but Joe and I were both uh, journalism students in college. That that's the school that we both attended, and and that's where I got my degree out of was There's the what? communications. Um, it it was in uh, the uh, Wisconsin college system here, mm-hmm. cool. and so one of the things that I really admired about you know just your journey in in journalism is the fact that you know I I just admired how tenacious you you are. I mean you you did a lot of uh, in investigative work that frankly I know you can't give away like all of your secrets for what you did.
2: I'm tired? Ask me.
0: Oh well, that's what I was gonna get into. Was was mm-hmm. trying to understand, like, how did you build that tool set out? Did you, you know, did you have people that you admired that you modeled it after? Did you? No, you know, no.
2: It's it, again, it's, it's it was just like dancing. That's that was interesting. We started back at the beginning, at the the origin story. It's it's like somebody who's a comic. It's a natural skill set. Um. Uh. You know, I was always a good writer. I liked journalism. I liked, um, I'm sorry, essay writing. I was just, you know, getting my first year of college out of the way. And what interested me most were term papers and writing. Um, So that natural skill combined with, um, if I can put a good sentence together, it doesn't matter what I look like, if I'm too ethnic, if I have a big nose, if I'm short, if I'm fat, if I'm not sexy enough. You, You know, you either put a good sentence together or you don't. So I had that going for me. Plus, I had, I guess, chutzpah is the word that's coming to my brain. I have a lot of balls. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm scared of very, very, very few things. I mean, I, I grew up on the streets of Las Vegas. and very little scare me. The only thing that really scares me are, are police because you, don't, you know if you get into the system, you don't know how it's going to turn out. Sure. Um, logic and law on your side all goes out the window. Um, so I've read. Um, <laughs> um, sure. Other than that, um, I had th- those two things going for me. Um, so I took my name off of most of my career so that I could actually sneak around like a mouse chasing its cat or a cat chasing its mouse. Um, I mm-hmm. could sit at a table right next to, a, a, you know, a Brad Pitt or a Jennifer Aniston or an Angelina Jolie or, especially at that time, a Britney Spears or something, and um, they'd never know. And I could show up over and over and over again, and they'd never know, you know, because my name isn't appearing on um, the hotel bill, or they can't connect my name with my byline um, in the news. So I was pretty good at being able to sneak around.
0: Yeah, yeah, because you you actually had a lot to do with, uh, you know, covering Britney Spears, you know, when she had yeah. the kind of shot to stardom i mean you, you even had the scoop on kanye west and kim k's you know baby names before anybody knew about them uh, from no. yeah yeah you there's this is actually an interview i think i read about where you apparently broke the easton name me yeah
2: i wasn't yeah,
4: I, 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 only, I only read about the, the fight you got into with uh Denise Richards. So
2: you know, you know I, I, that's weird because I was um not in the business by the time she got with Kanye.
0: Oh, okay. People oh. are telling that story with your name on it. So, well, yeah, cool. people are working for you behind the scenes. <laughs> you did
4: more than you knew. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, I but either way, I mean, it th- this was easily like the 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 area of like your 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 background that I got like the most into because um, I, I, just have a lot of respect for your ability to get that information. You know, mm-hmm. uh, um, I imagine it's, it's gotta be kind of fun being like a, almost a detective in a way. You're uh, a
2: detective. You're, you're a private eye, but you, yeah. you also have a lot of data banks at your disposal. Um, yeah. so you can find out addresses, phone numbers. Um, uh, we used to be able to track their flights from the, the, the tail number on FlightAware you get really good at using public data banks or that are uh, available to anybody and LexisNexis that, you know, the, the corporations pay for. Um, Yeah. So uh, Denise Richards, you want to talk about that?
0: Oh no, no, (laughs) no, no. 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 Come on, Nate. Come on. You've got the opportunity. You might as well.
4: All all I read about was that she come in and called you, called you the C word there. Yeah. Um, And, and I, I mean, Honestly, there were different takes on on who was at fault there, but it seemed like she came in to kind of challenge a little bit about what, or at least get an interview based on her. But if you want to tell a little bit more about it.
2: She was was really mad for real. Um, I didn't realize the setup. Um, um, E brought me in after after they shot. And they wouldn't show me the edited together version. What they wanted me to do, sitting down with a lawyer and with the promise of 500 extra bucks. And I'm like, well, will you bring me back for more stuff? Um, you know, I'd love to be an anchor on E, e- News. So it was playing nice. I, I was allowed to read the transcript of how they cut it together and they cut it like 100% out of sequence to, to make it look the way it looked. But um, she was legit mad. Um it was a fake office in like Northridge somewhere. I brought my computer, I brought my dog, I brought my own, you know, props and stuff. Um where she comes in and wants a story written that's positive, I guess. But almost immediately, first of all, she's fucking nuts. And I didn't okay. know this at the time. That, I believe you. She's she's done this constantly on the housewives shows. This is her modus operandi, uh, but I didn't know that at the time. And I don't even think he knew that at the time um, that she's the meltdown queen. She's she's a little bit un, un- unstable and unbalanced. Um, and I and I would love for her to give me a call and get mad at me about that uh, because <laughs> she she was living hell to work with, absolutely living hell to work with. Um, she comes in, they shoot live both sides of you. You know, the, there's a camera on me, a camera on you. So they so it's all synced up. They don't do,
3: mm-hmm.
2: um, you know, in reality show, in reality TV, there's cameras everywhere. They shoot all at the same time. Almost instantly, she is seeing me as the paparazzi, seeing, uh, seeing me as er- every tabloid that she hates. I've never written about her. No one, all of the magazines uh, I've ever worked for, don't give a flying fuck about her. They didn't care at all about her. She was she was C-list, so I was never called upon to interview her, to follow her, nothing. I I mean, I I do know that she would call paparazzi, um, for set up pictures in the park with her kids, looking beautiful with a full face of makeup, fake eyelashes, and there'd be paparazzi across the street shooting her. She'd make those calls. She wanted to get more famous, so wow. she would um instigate being followed. <clears throat> There's no oh. doubt about that. I don't think, you know, I don't know if she still does that, but back in the day, she certainly did. But I became the scapegoat for every tabloid report or story that it had ever been written about her. Um, I did a lot of research about her divorce filing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think she was really pissed about how educated I was on what is completely public record.
3: Absolutely. Mm-hmm.
2: Um, that had also already been written about. I just wanted to be educated when she came in. And it didn't take more than, honestly, three minutes. And boom, it started. So um, we shot a very little bit about it. They kind of give you a rough outline of where the plot points, where they want you to go. By the way, reality TV is not reality whatsoever. I've
4: I've been on reality TV, so, you know. Yeah. It's, It's. It's on House Hunters Nate was.
0: Oh, you,
2: cool. If you, if you didn't know that. Is it scripted? Is it it? Does it have an outline of script? Too? I can't
4: say anything about it. I'm under NDA. Oh. <laughs> you want to ask me some other time, maybe. No, I I'm can't, not. I can't do it. I'm
2: not. I'll tell you everything. <laughs>
4: yeah. Sorry.
2: So we're basically three minutes into shooting when she calls me a fucking cunt in front of my dog. Um, and uh, you know, my dog is still in therapy. It's like, what the mm. fuck? Um, and she leaves and uh it's really hot in that room i'm stripping sweat because all the lights finally they turn the lights out because down because she won't come back um now she's in her car in in the in the valet parking downstairs and she wants to leave and it's a half an hour and the i'm like you know again i'm petrified as if it's my fault i was like Tell me what to do. I mean, I'll, I'll 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 play nice. I don't care. You guys are the ones who told me to to bring this stuff up to confront her. You know, to bring some drama to the game. I was just doing again exactly what they asked me to do, but I guess a little bit too good, and she lost it. So after about forty-five minutes, they talk her into coming back, and only if I, you know, tone it completely down and. Um, I forget how it ended up but i just kissed her ass and that was really nice and i think they they just couldn't resist and they kept some drama in the shoot in the final edited version what i what i read was super out of context they gave me the 500 bucks and that was the end of that but it was it was very disappointing to see um how serious she takes herself and her image uh You know, that's probably why she really didn't become a dramatic or comedic actress. She just can play herself on TV, you know.
0: Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, kind of staying on the topic of of journalism here. uh, Joe actually has a question for you, uh, kind of going back to the Cosby case and and, uh, expanding
1: a little bit there. Yeah. um, So what our fans uh, would like to know, should your covering of the Cosby case be adapted into a book or a film, or do you think there's more of that story to be told?
2: Um, At this point, it has been exhausted. Um, Netflix came out with uh, a series uh, Let's Talk About Cosby or something. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: Um, I I think that has been run dry. I mean, the fact that he got out on a technicality after three years, and the fact that he could have gotten his sentence reduced prior to that while he was in prison if he would have taken domestic violence classes or victim awareness would give you points on probation parole I mean early early release and he refused to this moment he still denies that any of that occurred um, is a very psychopathic. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, uh, but you know, I was on Dr. Phil really early on. I got my own little segment with him talking about this. And one of the things that came to my mind as uh, uh, I pitched what I would say is I had a, um, an African-American massage therapist um, and who, did, who didn't know that I was a journalist and didn't know I broke the scandal. And I said, what do you think about Bill Cosby? He goes, oh, fucking gold diggers. And I said, all of them? oh you know and he goes yeah they all they're all out for the take they all of them for money i don't believe a word and that was primarily the african-american viewpoint on it was that all of these women were uh on the take that they're framing him and so what what i said on dr phil was like this really cannot be a conspiracy because i'm interviewing people from 1967 she was a playboy money at the playboy um uh, club here, all the way to to people in the 90s and in the in the 2000s. They are all different ages, races. You've got grandmothers. You've got you've got you know people in their 20s and everything in between, from all over the country who don't know each other with the exact same story. They wake up mm-hmm. and they smell cig- cigar and his cologne on them, and they're naked all of them and this is a terrible story to, to have to tell especially on the record nobody wants to tell this story on the record they're mm-hmm. not to, you know they didn't mm-hmm. all like meet it you know in the middle of the, of the country in dallas in a hotel room and go how are we going to get bill cosby now yeah. that he's nobody mm-hmm. now that he's like literally yeah. nobody you know decades after you know the cosby show in the 90s so it was really weird that there was so much denial at this point everything has been talked about um it was uh it was a it was very rough for me um i got the first handful of interviews but my boss at the time um had uh, a reporter who was there who had seniority over me a male reporter who all of the leads that like poured in after that because once a few people talk about it more and more women feel comfortable to talk about it, that there weren't repercussions, they weren't sued, they're mm-hmm. on the record, you can't touch them. Um, mm-hmm. you know, you're on the record. Um, so people were coming out of the woodwork, over 50, over 70, actually, in, in the end. But a lot of the, the, the leads that were started to pour in after I did the original five, went to this other reporter. And I was like, it really was rough on me. It was really rough on me. So, I, I mean, I did a lot of other, you know, celebrity journalism for uh, that outlet, but after a while, all the good stories were still going to this one guy. We were the only two mm-hmm. in Los Angeles, the Los Angeles office that um, I thought it was 2000, late 2015. I have enough money to pay off my house. I'm, I, I, think, I think I'm done. I think I'm done with journalism. Um, and I quit, I called up my boss. I told her everything I, that hurt my feelings through the years that disappointed me in her, um, how I felt she betrayed my um, my progression um, up the ladder, which she did. Um, and I ended that conversation with, well, she's." I call and I say, we need to talk. And she goes, um, okay, I think I'll, I'll try to be civil. And I went, she knows.
3: Mm-hmm. So
2: I just laid <laughs> out all of the problems that I had with her. You did, and it's not very healthy of me, by the way. This is not the way you, you know, you don't want to burn a bridge this badly, but I never wanted to work as a journalist again. I was done. Yeah. So um, I decided uh, to get it off my chest. I'm driving in the car on speaker, and I go, um, you know, you did this, you did this, you did this. Um, Dr. Phil wanted me to come in come in as a producer, and you you spoke badly about me, even though all I've done is given you exclusive stories you know i found all this out you didn't even you know this this is and this and then i said and by the way go fuck yourself like, i mean you never ever say that but i was so mad at the sabotage yeah um mm-hmm. and so you know what her response was click all right now <laughs> a couple years later i go i gotta apologize i can't i can't you know that was out of hand Yes, she was, well, in Denise Richard's words, uh, you know, she was a fucking... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> really- yeah, so I um, I wrote a really um, clear email apologizing and saying, look, you know, my apologies are backed up by a change of behavior or else it's not really a good apology. So I'll never do that, not only to you, but to anyone else again. And by the way, you're not obligated to respond and I don't have zero ulterior motives. I'm not sending you this note so that you'll work with me again or that I can come back. Um, I have no grand schemes of anything coming out of this other than just to say I'm sorry. And I sent that and I felt, you know, somewhat relieved. Never heard from her, but...
0: Well, speaking of of you know, kind of uh, well, well, how about we do this? We we love our transitions here on the show. We'll go hey. back to the beginning and and we'll talk about shifting gears. What we'd like to do is is talk about uh, Drive by Do Gooders, your oh. your nonprofit organization that um, Nate and I kind of got to know you through in the beginning here. Mm-hmm. And if you could just give us a little bit of uh, of a background on on the organization and and how you came up with the idea.
2: Okay. Well. Um let me elevator pitch it if I can. Uh, So, um, you know, growing up in Los Angeles, there are homeless people on every corner and they all look like they could be my brother or family member. In fact, my brother was homeless for many, many years um, due to an addiction. Um, And at some point it made the commute just so disheartening. It's like who to help, who not to help, what do I do? Do I just ignore them? And every person you ignore, You know, especially if the the, the mother has dragged out their kids and they're holding signs. It's just heartbreaking. It really is for any kind of empathetic or compassionate person. So I decided, you know what, if I've got it, I'll give it. If I don't, I won't. In other words, if I had an extra protein bar or if I had a sweater and I noticed I started to put more and more stuff in my passenger seat during my commutes or just driving around town so that it almost became a little endorphin rush. Oh, there's a homeless person. you know, I'd be able to give something. And right out of the, my car window. So, um, I started to get more involved officially like doing some buffet lines um, down in Skid Row and I was like, "Oh, man, this is, you know, this is the place. There's 12,000 people in about 30 40 square blocks and they're not going anywhere. These are permanent. A lot of them are elderly, disabled, you know, uh, maybe 80 to 90% African American, 10% Hispanic. You've got a small amount of you know white, white drug addicts, but they all live at the beach. Um, it was really, really pitiful. Um, and I, so I, I started to kind of befriend um, some people on this one block, and then I'd come once a week, then three times a week, just giving basics. Because I already knew I can't solve the homeless problem. I mean, all the the mayor's race, we're having a mayor's race right now. The five people wanting to become mayor, The only topic anyone is talking about is solving the homeless problem because it's gotten out of hand. There's 60,000 homeless adults wandering around L.A. County without a roof over their heads. Um, Yes, addiction. Yes, mental illness. But you try camping on a sidewalk and see if you don't start, you know, create an addiction or a mental illness. Mm -hmm. If you don't have one already, you know. Um, So it is endemic poverty. But I can't solve any of that. What I can do is give out triage and that's what drive by instead of drive by shooting right and i'm always a, i'm a goody two-shoes i'm really like a do-gooder in a kitchen cleaning up after a party and all that so i drive by and i do good uh i d- decided to become an official 501c3 um in 2015. so i take out volunteers mainly teenagers um on the weekends, and we go to the outskirts of Skid Row where, again, the elderly and disabled have a harder time reaching some of the services and just give out basic human essentials, basic triage, water, wipes, socks, cold string cheese for protein, tangerines, tarps, um, sweaters, blankets, tents. So, um, hey, you guys d- uh, donated a tent I'm <laughs> right now. <It's- laughs> six-person tent. It's going to be cool. I'll send a picture for you, to you when I find um, uh, an applicable uh, recipient. Uh, one of the problems with giving out tents is that unless I've learned to set it up with them there, because handing mm-hmm. them, you know, an eighty-dollar tent. Guess, guess what it turns into? You know, five of meth is what. It turns oh
1: into. yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: You know, I'd come back the following day to follow up, and it was like oh, somebody stole it or, oh, you know, or they just disappeared because they know me. I've been out on, mm-hmm. on the same route, like, you know, post office route since 2013, every single weekend. So they know me. And so, you know, they're kind of hiding from me because a few of my real regulars I trusted immediately turned around and sold them. So four out of the five tents I've given away are gone. Wow. I'm sitting on yours, boys, until...
3: <laughs> until <laughs>
2: Yeah, so drive by do gooders. Um, I collect money like five bucks a person. Um, you can go to my Instagram dr- at drive by do gooders or my personal Facebook page at least CNF or the website by do gooders.org that's drive by do gooders.org and click on the donate button. It's really easy. You'll see a lot of videos there. Um, you know, we have no overhead so. A lot of the videos I post every week are really just trying to show evidence that we're using your money immediately. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, I'm not using it to get my hair dyed <laughs> or my nails done. <laughs> um, yeah, every penny goes directly, and you know, to those who need it the most. Um, yeah,
0: yeah, and we, and that was that was a no brainer for our show was to support oh, you because mm-hmm. we we were looking at videos of how you've supported the community and. I mean, it's heartbreaking to see folks experience a third world country environment in this nation. You Seven
2: know? miles away from the beach houses, the $3 million beach houses. Also, yeah. it's the art district where if you're going to get a, a loft, that's going to cost you, put you back $1.5 million. There's all these five-star restaurants literally within walking distance of complete third world slums. There's no bathrooms out there. That's not mm-hmm. a single water fountain. They crack open fire hydrants and, and fill up buckets and stuff and wash the clothes, wash their bodies, you know, for water. I mean, when it's 90 degrees in L.A., it's it, where I live, it's 10 degrees hotter there. You know, mm-hmm. there's no there's no hygiene. So one of our catchphrases is hydration and hygiene to the heart of the homeless. Just mm-hmm. basic human needs. Everybody deserves mm-hmm. to, to have some sanitation and some drinking water. You know, until mm. everything else
0: gets worked out, you know. Sure. And actually, uh, we did have a fan question come up about drive-by do-gooders uh, that that Nate's going to take care of for us here to kind of round yeah. us out. Do you work with any other
4: any other cities, or, or are you like you're like a network of help? Because, like, you know, in Austin, even we've got you know a pretty you know big homeless problem here, like Where in they, the areas and stuff. And they've right. it you know recent ordinances have been sort of rolled back and. We don't really even know where the city, you know, what the city is doing about it or what they're. we just know in some areas where they were. They're no longer there. So I can't assume that they're.
2: Yeah. What happens is you you roll down a a street thinking maybe I'll just drop off a case of water and then all of them are gone. That happens here all the time. I mean, right now, especially because there's a mayor's election coming up in a couple of months, an entire block that was there one week is completely gone. And it's like, hold on a minute. They're, all of their numbers didn't come up to get housing all at the same time in that mm-hmm. day around the corner, and none of them have been displaced. Where did they? Uh oh, 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 you know. So it's 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 very uh, disconcerting to to. We Drive by Diggers tries to stay out of the politics, so you know we're just you know no agenda. Just pure giving is another one of our catchphrases. But as far as uh, expanding, we would love to. That that means more revenue. Um, it's kind of hard to get uh, grants, corporate sponsors sponsors. You know, if we were saving starving kittens in Skid Row, we'd be rich. Um, you know, or a uh, inner city soccer team. But these are homeless adults that nobody cares about overall. They want to, I mean, get rid of them in all the cities because they're an eyesore, and it makes you feel your own reality, you know, somewhere in there. And that's why it's like, you don't want to look at it. Not in my, they call them NIMBYs, right? Not in my backyard. It's just, just uh-huh. it can be under a bridge, but just another bridge, not the one I, me and my children, you know, commute on, get rid of them. It's like, where are they going to go? And these uh-huh. are people, you know, there's somebody's son, somebody's mother, somebody's grandmother. So we'd love to expand. At the moment we have kind of just enough money to, support our weekly drive-bys. But I did put together a, a Google deck uh, with a budget that would include uh, you know, a warehouse where we can house our stuff and, and how we'd expand into the South Bay and some other areas in Southern California. And I mean, it would be great to turn this into a franchise. So, well, mm-hmm. first, get me on Picard okay
1: <laughs> yes <laughs> goal one
2: i think they just
1: finished, finished
4: filming season three so it may have to be something they put like in post or something so we'll we'll, no do our... <laughs> well, we'll do our we'll do so our part <laughs> they just
2: announced bringing back the entire uh, original cast so that might be there could be some recurring roles coming in yeah
0: yeah well <laughs> and, hey f- f- fingers crossed and you know at at the end of it here Alicia you've survived a digital dissection so we we appreciate you joining us um and we appreciate answering our fan questions as well um it's been an absolute amazing time getting to talk with you and at the end of these conversations we always like to offer up the floor to our guests at the end uh if there's anything that you'd like to tell either the dissection crew or or maybe uh you know maybe Denise Richards you you, you have the floor <laughs>
2: niece you, yeah, you have to grow up. I mean, the nightmare that you continue to propagate by your own hand on camera, looking at the camera. Okay. But really, <laughs> Nate, what I probably say, uh, anybody who's tuning in from Austin or any city, you can be a drive-by do-gooder immediately. Just put a few extra little things that you normally would pick up at the grocery store. And if you see a homeless person, they're even if they're acting nuts, Roll down the window and go, hey, would you like a bottle of water? You'll be so surprised. They snap out of it and immediately take it and say, thank you. God bless you. Ten out of ten times, people uh, who are homeless will accept it and feel so grateful. And it makes you feel good. It makes them feel good. You get what's called um, a helper's high, which is a real thing. It's a little dopamine hit. When you help somebody, you get a little dopamine hit. You know Mm -hmm. it's a real thing so you can be a drive-by do-gooder immediately just put some stuff uh, uh, water a protein bar a banana and um, even your old socks as long as they're clean balled up are you kidding socks are in such high demand or your old tennis shoes belt totally Mm -hmm. well you know hey hey buddy do you do you need a sweatshirt They'll they'll take it you know it makes Mm -hmm. them feel good it makes you feel good it's like paying taxes you know it's like recycling we're, we're such consumers and we're digital consumers now
3: mm-hmm. you know that
2: we have to give back in some way and this is the easiest way in the universe to give back you don't even have to give money even though i'd love your money
3: <laughs> <laughs>
2: love buy me about 40 bottles of water but you can you know immediately start giving uh with product right in your own house you know that's what i have to say
0: awesome awesome <laughs> Alicia once again thank you so much for your time we we can't thank you enough it's been amazing getting to hear some of these stories that that frankly don't get told all the time you know we yeah, yeah. We, we absolutely love mm-hmm. it and and to the folks that are listening uh, we absolutely encourage you to please check out drive di- dot and if you can't donate share the cause please just spread the word tell folks about it and and we'd really appreciate it from us here at the show but but yes Alicia thank you so much thank you. Loved having you. All right. If you ever yes. come up with
2: more questions, give me a holler. <laughs> <It's awesome. laughs> yeah,
1: I'm, cheap. I'm cheap that way. So <laughs> But we'll be happy to get you another tent or some water, uh, as long as you ride safe out there. Uh, on two wheels.
2: I know, right? The sunny side up, the shiny side up, that's what they say, right? Yes, Wasn't shiny
1: it? side up. Mm-hmm. It's a- <laughs>
2: All right, boys, this was so fun. Thanks a lot.